This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm live in studio today with Logan Bartlett, who is at Red Point Ventures, where he's a venture capitalist. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks for joining. Did I get Red Point Ventures correct? Red Point Ventures, yep. Okay, right. good. That is a VC firm that I used to deal with back in the day because they did a lot of web video stuff. Is that right? I, yeah. I, uh, how long ago was that? 2008, nine. Yeah, 10. okay. Uh, Redpoint was like the hottest firm at, in the last internet bubble, right? It was like 99, 2000. IVP and Brentwood came together and like took all their best people uh, and joined one firm. And IVP, actually, people know this is another venture capital firm, mm-hmm. shut down for like a year and then rebooted the whole thing, which is interesting. And so a lot of people that I'll talk to, they're like, oh, I know Redpoint. Like yeah. 99, 2000, like huge tech bubble. And then it burst, right? And we were very media centric back then. And then when the bubble bursts and you're this high profile thing, I think you kind of retrench for a little while and sort of keep quiet. And so we kind of kept quiet for like 15 years ish and just kind of went back to working with startups. And, and, uh, we've, we've obviously changed that a little bit now, yeah. uh, but yeah, interesting. So now you're here, I don't talk to a ton of VCs on this podcast at least, but the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I saw you on TikTok. I was like, that's weird. I mean, TikTok gives me food and people dancing. Um, and I guess it kind of makes sense that I'm, I'm clicking on businessy stuff, but I didn't understand and I didn't know you. I looked you up. I'm like, oh, he's a VC at Redpoint. Why is Redpoint doing TikTok? I figured out you're actually kind of doing TikTok as a sidelight. You've got a podcast. That's right. It's called? Uh, it's called Cartoon Avatars. And we, uh, yeah, we release every Friday night. We've been doing it for, I guess, episode 19 was this past week. and we, So once a week, so whatever that is. So you're talking to a lot of people that, that I talk to, and I always get frustrated when people who don't do what I do for a living do it as a sidelight. This used to be blogging and now it's podcasting. You're talking to people like Ben Thompson. If you're listening to my podcast, you probably want to listen to Logan's podcast. I as appreciate well. that plug. You are, it's right out of the gate, right? You started at the beginning of this year? Yeah. Uh, beginning of February. So it's you. You've got sort of a, a recurring cast of characters. Zach Weinberg is your He's a entrepreneur who did Invite Media and then a giant healthcare thing. Yeah, Flatiron. Flatiron, which he sold for $2 billion. Um, and then you bring on people and, and talk to them and interview them and have, have fun and fights. I think this is an obvious question with an obvious answer, but but why are you making a podcast and then cutting it up and putting it on TikTok and apparently YouTube as well? Yeah, uh, no, it's it's a it's a great question. Well, I I actually get kicked out of all my venture capital group chats if I don't say it's because I don't trust the media and I have to go direct and cut out everyone else. Like I get so to explain that, it, you're against the against the media. Big media. Yeah, exactly. The gatekeepers of the world, like venture capitalists and tech in general. I have to say that otherwise uh, I, I get kicked out of group chats. No, uh, the the actual 
initial reason was, I, I guess the original inspiration was uh, to take it back at the beginning of the pandemic. I worked at a firm, Battery Ventures, which was regulated as a uh, RIA, right? And so I was kind Explain of- what an RIA is. Sorry, a registered investment advisor. And so there's limitations on what you can say because you know it, it could be perceived as marketing and just a whole bunch of other regulatory considerations with it. And so I was a little more muted in my public persona, right? Uh, there was a compliance department that would tell me what I could say. There are literally say. rules against what you could say. Rules against what I could say and a partnership that might not agree with my tone. And so I joined Redpoint at the beginning of the pandemic, which is a weird time to join a venture firm. And we didn't have that. And then I was bored and I started tweeting and I tweeted a lot that started growing and all this. And so that was kind of one side hustle was like, oh, this is fun. I'm kind of messing around on Twitter, experimenting, spending way too much time on my phone. And then I saw the success of All In, uh, which I don't know if your listeners will know that, but it's a group of tech venture capitalists that do a podcast. I think Jason it's, Kilkenna, Shamath, uh, Freeberg. Yep. Uh, yeah. And uh, so it's four tech billionaires as they self-proclaim and they're kind of commenting on the tech news and they've been doing it for two years and it's gotten to be a top 25 35 podcast in the world right and uh they they are now breaking news very regularly having elon musk on stage saying he's probably not going to buy twitter right and so I saw that and I was like, gosh, that's it's amazing. There's clearly this market for it. Uh, Jason Calcanis and Shamath, I know a little bit. They like attention. Yes. Right. They like making money and stuff, but they also love attention. It's just part of their DNA. And I remember years ago, Shamath wanted to like create something like this with other people as the interviewers. And I think it makes sense that he said, oh, I'll just do that. Yeah. I like going on CNBC. Why don't I just have my own show? What about that is appealing to you as someone whose job it is to find companies, fund them, and help them grow? Yeah. So this kind of dovetails to same period of time, but over the last two years, the venture capital market really heated up to the extent your listeners follow this stuff. Like people were doing no diligence and paying crazy prices for throwing companies. money at companies. Throwing We've money seen at this before, but this is a, the newest version of this. This is the newest version of that. And I joked that uh, my job started as a hedge fund analyst doing like a ton of analytics and evaluation and all that. And then I became a Hollywood agent and I was a venture capitalist the entire time. And so my job increasingly was becoming being known to get access to deals, being known to help my portfolio companies recruit and hire and all that. So right? just to spell this out, because I think a lot of people, even people who listen to this podcast and are reasonably savvy about tech and media, assume that if you're a venture capitalist, your job is to write checks, that people come to you and say, please fund my company, and you say, yes, no, maybe. But especially in the market that we've been in recently – what I keep hearing is you guys have to chase those companies. Say, like, please, can we give you money? The analogy I'll always use is like picture, you know, you're you're pitching Shark Tank and it's Mark Cuban and it's a whatever, Mr. Wonderful and all those guys. But there's 15, 20, 30 of them. And you end up with instead of one shark that's willing to take your money, you have 10 sharks that uh, are willing to give you money. And so that was kind of the world that we were in. And so it's like, what is your value prop that you offer uniquely, right? And I think we're living in this hyper-personalized world where everything is customized to the individual. And so I, I'll use the analogy of venture capital that like we used to be in the broadcast television days where you tried to appeal as, as broadly as you could and not get canceled. You made I Love Lucy. And then we sort of moved to cable television where you specialized a little bit more, MSNBC, ESPN, all that. Now we're in this hyper-personalized TikTok or streaming wars thing. 
And I felt like I needed to stand out in some way. This is content marketing. Content marketing, for sure. And so I felt like there was an opportunity for me, for us as a firm, to differentiate ourselves versus everyone else. And obviously, I know you've had uh, Margaret from Andreessen Horowitz on. They've taken a similar but different tact of this. How do you cut through the noise in a super competitive environment? And so the Twitter thing was one path to it. And then the podcast seemed like a next extension. I thought it would be easy. It's been far more hard, harder than I would have expected. But uh, I want to connect a couple of things. So the kind of stuff that you specialize in um, in your job, the kind of companies you fund are, are what? For the most part, I am uh, Series B, Series C, which is 15 people to 100 person money losing software companies is what I do. Now, as a firm, that's about two thirds of what we do on the business model, mostly software stuff. And then a third is fintech healthcare uh, consumer. Event. So you've you've got a company that's going, it's been funded a couple different times, it's growing, people are giving that company money, but they're still losing money. Uh, usually, I assume enterprise software. Normally in content marketing, someone would say, oh, we must make content that appeals to the people who are running these SaaS companies, and they would come up with reasons why your service is best in class, blah, blah, blah. One, as far as I can tell, you're not doing any of that in in your podcast. It's just entertaining content. And two, like it's obviously about tech and the markets and money, but it's not about enterprise software. I'm assuming that's conscious on your part. Yeah, I sort of think, I mean, it's honestly kind of a sales funnel, right? And at the very top is brand marketing and just awareness. Just we're a company. Just we exist in the world, right? And, and like, Logan is smart and interesting, and he's he seems like a likable enough guy that I would want on my board, right? Or if he wanted to give me money, and so that's like the very top of the funnel. Then the next stage is like, how do you tactically help the entrepreneur? And we have services that we offer to the portfolio companies. We have different levels of domain expertise within the firm. A bunch of stuff that we do well. And then it's once you invest, how do you help as well? So that's the funnel. But what I felt like we were lacking or there was an opportunity was like the very top of the funnel, just the awareness that when Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz, they get mentioned in every media article that gets written. Tiger Global, same thing. I was looking for something that got us mentioned at least sometimes in those PR. Got you on Peter Kafka's Got me on Peter Kafka. That was exactly, here we are. I've made it. Did you run this by the rest of the team? Say, I'm going to start a podcast and it's going to eventually be on TikTok? And That's right. Uh, yes. The fall of last year, I sort of became obsessed with TikTok as a platform last year. And it felt like a very simple calculus in my mind that like, are a bunch of young people using this all the time? Yes. Will information get disseminated? And like, can you build a brand around that? Yes. Is there an opportunity for us to get out in front that other people aren't doing this stuff Yes. And so it was actually kind of a simple decision tree. Now, my partners kind of thought I was crazy when I pitched it. We actually have two different TikToks. One is my podcast has TikTok, and we can talk about podcast as a ecosystem and how it's hard to acquire customers and all that or listeners, right? We also have a corporate TikTok as well that's mostly humor-based, and it's kind of satirical about the tech industry. And so that was a harder sell of like, hey, our corporate handle is going to have satirical tech content. People, oh, are, oh, this is I, I know that one too. Yeah, uh, 
I can't. I don't know his name. Rashad. Yeah. Yeah. So Big so curly hair. Curly hair. I uh, so he was an AE at Looker. I found him, which was a portfolio company of ours, and ended up being acquired by Google for I don't know two and a half billion dollars. And I found him. I was just going down the rabbit hole of of corporate TikTok accounts or people that I thought had good sense of humor. And I stumbled on him, and he was in tech. And I, I evaluated I don't know fifteen people, and then I had to convince him. This is September through January. Like, hey. I know there's no comps for this, but like, come on and let's try this thing. And to his credit, he was willing to do it. So he's doing sort of office work, Gen Z humor, some, but some of it's pretty specific to that's why I'm seeing it, right? It, uh, fine. He's, he, he gets tech. Right? He gets he gets tech. It, it's been an interesting uh, – I, we've had to translate the sales. He was at AE, and so translating sales to tech. But, like, all these things are kind of analogous. And so once he, he's like, hey, is there ever a situation that, like, you're presenting a demo that doesn't make – I'm like, yeah, all the time. Here's the tech version yeah. of that, right? And, again, that stuff never says, and this is why you should come work at Redpoint or Redpoint offers the best thing. It just has a tag. It says Redpoint. That's, yeah, the only reason that's, you know. that's all it is. And we've been pretty careful about – trying not to shill too much ourselves in that. Now, at some point, are we going to cross-pollinate with other stuff there? Yes, right? And we're starting to do video-centric investment memos or investment announcements where we, hey, we invested in this company and let's stitch together kind of a TikTok video, right, that tells about the company. And but, who who is in charge of saying, hey, that's, that's you crossed a line here. That's a funny joke, but we can't have it attached to our company. Or actually, we're trying to pitch this thing, so stay away from that. You're talking to the person that owns 99% of that. Now, there's a 1% of like, are we crossing the line that I'll go to the group on? And generally, if I'm asking that question, generally the answer is yes. But it is like, we have to be careful. My rules, the rough framework is like, don't punch at entrepreneurs just because I don't think that's a good look in general. And our job's beholden on You can punch at VCs. You can punch, punch at VCs, tech. punch at big tech, punch at abstract individual contributors. One of our biggest videos is like making fun of big tech engineers, right? And like the privilege that they have and stuff like that we can do. But we try to stay away from the very specific entrepreneurial. I mean, being an entrepreneur is tough, right? And we're beholden to them to have a job. That's sort of the line, the rough framework. I've yet to touch the stove in a way that my partners were kind of like WTF, but we've come close. For How sure. much time and money are you guys putting in this? How many people are working on this project? How much are you investing in it? Full time, three-ish, three to four. For making podcasts, shooting video, yeah, all video. that. Like, like people. I, I guess some are contractors, but like full. This is their full thing. And then we probably have another stable of three or four that sort of help on a part time basis. Dollar wise, I don't. I don't think my partners are comfortable with that. But it's a significant investment, yeah, right? That's real. It's more than a lot of folks. More than a lot of folks. But VC is a great business, right? And so we get fees that from our funds that last for a long time. And it's a great business until the music stops and your brand's irrelevant. And then it's a really bad business. When you're in the bottom of the pit, you can't climb out. It's 100% this thing where it's like at the top of the flywheel, it's great because you see everything, you win at discounted prices, all of that. At the bottom, people don't talk to you. It's different than other asset classes where you can just pay the most and you win. I sort of compare it to if you're selling your house, you probably don't care that much about who buys it. If someone's paying 10% more, who cares? Like I, that person's kind of a jerk, but I'll give it to them. 
if that person's moving into your room as an Airbnb, like you're going to be a little bit more considerate about who comes in. And so that's kind of the way the VC industry works. And brand is a really important component of that. So you've been at this since last fall on a concerted effort. I started courting Rashad in September and he came on full time in January. I started thinking about the podcast in November. We launched the beginning of February. We're in June. Do you know if this effort has led to any meetings and or deals? The attribution side of it is is hard, as you'd imagine. The gut of all of this is like one million percent yes. And I think everyone, even the skeptics internally, have uh, have come around and been like, oh, gosh, this is this is great for us. We're trying to figure out the attribution funnel. I think the easiest way to do it is post investment, talking to them and saying, hey, what, you know, how'd you come across us? What all that, you know, kind of evaluating down funnel. We don't have anything other than kind of follower growth and anecdotal pieces to, to back up right now, but we're working on all the analytics and stuff. How long do you give this before you have to go, look, this is fun. It's fun for Logan. It's good for Logan's brand. Um, but this is resources and we need to have a real conversation about whether this is making us money or not. I check in with uh, my partners on the stuff every, uh, at least with regard to my podcast, every time we make an incremental investment, which is has been every six weeks or so. We're kind of figuring, hey, you know, here are the numbers. Here's the feedback I'm getting. Should we keep going? And the answer has actually been universally yes to their credit. We're doing quarterly check-ins on it. Obviously, as you hire people full time, the bar of like uh, how much time you're going to give them to figure this stuff out is far higher. Quarterly and annually is kind of the period of time we're evaluating all this stuff. Um, but yeah, we're, we're making it up as we go along. So let's let's broaden the aperture a little bit. We've been talking a bit, little bit about this. There is a ton of, has been a ton of money from VC going into tech. I've now seen multiple cycles. It seems like this is, I think you actually put out a nice uh, PDF about this. There has been a ton of money going into tech. Before we get to the downturn, every time in the cycle, you see more and more money. So what was pushing the money up this time around? So a couple of things. Two things have been true for a while, but companies were staying longer or private longer, right? And so they uh, needed money. They they needed money and or money that would have gone been invested in the public markets was now coming into the private markets. I can't invest in Airbnb because it's not public, so I'm going to find some way to put it in. I'm going to go find exactly right. The other one is I think we're in a great period of you know, a tech innovation cycle between uh, software and internet and digitization and different countries and locales and fintech and all that stuff. So it feels like the innovation and the, the private longer, that's been true for a while. The two things that happened recently were, one, uh, we had interest rates at all-time lows, uh, which leads to investing in risk or growth. Money is free. I can't just stick it in a bond so I'm going to pursue things that have more growth potential for return. And then the other one was the global pandemic. And I will tell you, the sector that held up well was tech and work from home and all that stuff, especially compared to retail or travel, hospitality, healthcare, all that stuff, right? And so money was flowing out of those sectors and into tech, which led to a very frothy tech environment over the last two years. So now it sounds like Music has stopped. Pandemics. So, so, so the la the first two things are still true: innovation cycles and uh, private longer. The second two things are no longer true. Interest rates are going up, and we're out of the pandemic mostly. Stock market is going down. Tech stocks way down. There are examples anecdotally so far of big public tech companies saying, hey, we're either going to cut jobs or we're going to cut them by having a hiring freeze and we'll lose bodies that we're cutting costs. There are stories about some private tech companies imploding. 
It doesn't feel like a total collapse, but my Twitter feed is full of VCs saying, winter is coming, it's here, batten up the doors, make sure you have years of runway. And that may or may not be good advice, but I don't remember hearing all of that in other downturns. Is there some reason that lots and lots of people who do what you do for a living um, are making a point of making public proclamations about this? Well, two things. One, um, the reason we did it or the reason I, I pulled because you've done one of these. Like I did one coming. of these and it was in March and it was ahead of our annual meeting. And so I had to pull together these slides anyway. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm going to get out in front of this. I remember, you know, when people when corrections have happened, Sequoia's RIP good times always gets referenced. Yeah, I wanna, right? I wanna, let's tell, tell, tell people who haven't been in tech for the last 10 so, years. So Sequoia Capital, one of the most venerable venture brands that I have a ton of respect for, put out in 2008. There's a very ominous picture that I think has been associated with it, but it, it was a presentation that said RIP good times. And it, was it was meant to be delivered to their portfolio companies. To their portfolio companies. I think they released it publicly or it got out publicly. They didn't mind that it got out. They publicly. didn't mind that it got out publicly. One, it struck a lot of fear into the industry. And two, it proved to be uh, overly cynical about what was going to happen, right? Obviously, the global financial crisis impacted a lot of things, but tech companies, maybe less so. And so they've been somewhat chastised and colloquially j joked about like, hey, you know, I I've, I've made jokes about we will only know that we're we're at the bottom when Sequoia posts their deck because that's been known as like the canonical example of like guys button down the hatches. Sequoia did another one in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic that was similar in tone. And but we thought tech was going to collapse. And again, get, we thought everything was going to collapse. We thought everything was going to collapse. And again, didn't prove to be true. And so I think that right or wrong, I think this is probably going to happen, or at least there's going to be a pullback in multiples back in March. I have to do this work anyway. Might as well publish it out. And maybe Redpoint will get the halo of being known as the firm that was out in front of this. So these memos, the proclamations, you make them, other folks make them, they're either meant, in theory, the audience is supposed to be the portfolio companies. These are the entrepreneurs we've invested in. We're trying to give them advice. Or sometimes we're telling our investors they're giving us money to give to other people. This is what's happening. It is also, it seems, content marketing. What is, but what is the advantage for ringing the bell while everyone else is ringing the bell and saying, hey, look, it's coming? I think it's just being known as a thoughtful kind of prescient investor that, again, goes back to this top of funnel brand marketing. Like, If you think about my constituents, I sort of have three different groups. One is our I guess four if you count our employees, but let's put employees to the side. Our investors that give us money, our portfolio companies that we give money, and then it's the ecosystem at large that could either be future investors, could be future entrepreneurs that I want to back, all that. If you really were only servicing those second two, the first two buckets, the people that give you money or the people you give money, you could do this in a much quieter way. Like There's no need for this stuff to get out there. I think it's really the brand marketing of everything else and trying to be known as a thoughtful, prescient, ahead of the curve person that gives you know some brand advantages to these venture firms. Now, do you want to be associated with negative fear mongering? That's a debate people can have. But at a minimum, I, I think a lot of people found this to be likely true. And content marketing is way different today in the VC space in terms of how competitive it is than it was 15 years ago. If everyone has overshot the mark and the correction is not as bad as everyone thought, and it, it turns out to be some version of the pandemic where actually it turns out tech did great. Do people get penalized for, for saying the end is near and then it wasn't? 
Not really. I mean, Sequoia, I think, still gets kind of joked about the RIP Good Times thing, but their brand has been able to insulate from it. Uh, and so I, I don't really think so. It sort of comes back to the all publicity is good publicity type thing. I, I don't think people are really keeping score about broad-based content marketing. There is a theory which seems really dumb to me that says, oh, the VCs are trying to scare the, uh, the, I love the founders in that way this, they're going to get better deals. It mentally, it, it kind of falls apart if you've ever thought through like a prisoner dilemma or game theory or something. It's kind of like, how would you think you would really have to believe there's a conspiracy that we were all in cahoots to drive down prices. And then there's that one guy who believes all those, uh, the guy from Bolt. Ryan Bressa, who I've, who I've had on before. And even he doesn't think, because I, I tried to drill him on, how do you think this works? Like, he believes well, everything is a conspiracy. He, yeah, yeah. But especially that VCs are working with each other to... And at, to at collude the, to drive down price. Which sounds great in concept, but like try to get, it would be like a bunch of real estate agents saying, hey, let's all agree to keep down these prices so that there's more that the houses sell quicker. All it takes is one of them to go to their client and be like, hey, by the way, I agreed to this, but I'm not going to do it for that entire thing to fall apart. And so it's actually just not practical. Sure, there's perverse incentives in place, but like we're in a competitive market competing with everyone else. And so like, how would we actually do that? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Logan Bartlett. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. I keep asking this question when I talk to people like you. I get that the the stock market is down. So things that were worth $100 are now worth $75. Pick whatever the number is. And so that the fact that valuations in the public markets are down is, is going to push that onto private markets. So this company that we thought was worth $100 is now worth $75 and we have to adjust. But the the warnings you're hearing from people like yourself are that nothing is going to get done for the next two. Make sure you have two years of runway, or or the you know these kind of companies will get funded, but at a massive discount. And all these other kind of companies that were getting money, they're not going to get money ever again. And that is very hard for me to reconcile because you're saying this thing that we all collectively thought was valuable a couple months ago, not very long ago, is now we won't touch it. So. Did we all make the same mistake at the same time? Should we have to say, by the way, we were wrong. We shouldn't have funded this thing six months ago at this level. It, it's The dissonance doesn't quite make sense to me. And I keep coming out to, well, also, you guys are paid to invest in things. Don't you eventually have to go, well, th there's this company and it's worth less than we thought, but we're st it's, we still like it. We're still going to give it money. Yes, yes, and yes, I guess, to all of that. So so there's two components here uh, on different time horizons that I kind of think about. Right now, there's a weird thing that's happening where there's there needs to be price discovery. So the public markets are marked to market every single day, every hour, every minute. There's thousands of transactions that are occurring. In the private markets, it, it, it's like a real estate transaction, right? It might only happen once a year, every five years, right? Uh, it seems to be it has been- You multiple. sell this house once every however many years. And, and, so, and so how do you determine what- price is worth, it takes a little while. You need a lot of people poking and prodding if you haven't sold your house in 10 years, right? 
uh, how do you know what that that's worth? Sure, you can look at comps around the space or whatever, but like your house is unique, right? And so someone might see different. And so right now we're in this weird period of time where the public markets, which is kind of the leading indicator for all this, has pulled back. The private markets was following the public markets, but that doesn't get marked to market every single day. And so everyone's kind of in this weird price discovery of like, all right, well, what do you want, Mr. Entrepreneur? In December, you were willing to take, you know, you wanted this price to be a billion dollars. Now I'm willing to do it at 200 million. And the entrepreneur says, well, what's going on? I don't want that. I want the billion dollars. And it's like, all right, well, go find someone that'll pay you. And so they end up talking to a lot of people and then that discovers the market. And so we're in this weird period right now. I think it's going to take a couple months to flesh out, right? That's that's sort that's of short term. We're just going to come, we're going to go back and forth on what the price is. We're in this weird funky time that that's price. Now, but that's not what you're hearing from a lot of people. He's saying there is going to be no more money for this kind of company. Yes. It, well, and a lot of companies have raised so much money that they actually don't even need to go find the price. They're like, "Hey, I'm just going to go sit and build my company and not worry about it because there's been a lot of money poured in over the last 2 years." The dark times message is kind of twofold. One, I think there's a class of company that has been funded in the past by maybe less discerning VCs that probably should have gone out of business, but capital was plentiful. They only existed because money was coming in to keep them alive. Yes. And capital was plentiful. And so people were funding them. And so those companies, I think if they're going to need cash in the next two years, as things have gotten tightened, you know, the, the different quartiles, if you're, if you're, you know, third quartile, Probably not going to make it if you need to raise capital. And that, but again, that's because money was essentially free. Now it's not. If money's not free, I'm not going to throw it into Uber, but for laundry. Correct. That's um, right. Which is a pitch I've been getting now because there's just no up. There, the upside for me is so much more limited. And also my money is more limited. So I'm going to put it into things that look safer. Yeah, that's right. And the reason this all happens is because we have investors that have a mix of public and private that they want to allocate their money to. Picture a big pension plan, right? And so they said, hey, I want to be, let's just use rough numbers, 20% in privates and 80% in publics. Well, if that 80% in publics goes down, now you're actually at, maybe your ratio has ended up being 40-60, right? And so they're saying, oh, shoot, we should stop giving these mediocre managers money. And so those mediocre managers are saying, oh, gosh, our investors aren't giving us any money. And so they can't give money to these companies, right? And so that's the kind of the medium-ish term thing is these next tier companies aren't going to get funded. The the broad one that I don't really have an opinion on that that people seem really uh, nervous about is just like, we, this has all been a valuations conversation for the most part is, what are these things worth? And we can all agree at some point, if they need cash and it's a good business, We'll find the price, right, that make things work. Maybe it's a down round where they raise at less than the last price, but that's fixable. If it's a if it's actually a recession and the war in the Ukraine, the interest rate fall off, whatever that stuff is, then that starts to hit business fundamentals. And I think that's where you really hear people nervous about like that's not a valuation conversation. That's a fundamentals of business standpoint. And I think that's where a lot of the fear-mongering or, or skittishness is on the VC side. So let's have the crypto conversation. So a lot of stuff we're talking about has been 
these are companies that make a product, sell a product, and they make some money or they lose some money, and you can sort of see what the thing is, and maybe it will get better, maybe it'll get worse. It's sort of easy to evaluate. So much of crypto, from what I can tell, is one day this thing is going to be an amazing thing. I can't even tell you what the amazing thing is because it doesn't exist and no one's even thought of it yet. So you're taking a big, big bet on the future which either makes it really hard to invest in because you don't know what it is, or maybe it's easier to invest in because you go, I don't know, maybe 10 years from now, this will turn out to have been a thing. Um, so first of all, where, how is the downturn in public and private tech affecting crypto? Meaningfully. And I think everyone, one of the big pitches we heard from crypto over the course of the last, whatever, five years has been, it's an inflation hedge, or it's an interest rate flat hedge, or it's a currency hedge, or it's the a recession hedge. The stock market goes hedge. down, your Bitcoin will still be worth a lot of money. I think what's shown is that actually it's a speculative market in the same way that a lot of these other things were speculative markets, right? You were trying to generate return that was that you couldn't get in a bond. And so it's been impacted pretty meaningfully. I mean, I think Bitcoin was at uh, $70,000 a Bitcoin is sort of where it, where it uh, hit down. the high watermark. Last and maybe fall, yeah. Now it's 28, 30, 32, something in that range. So it's fallen off a, a meaningful amount, right? And that's true of Ethereum and all the other coins as well. What about the pitch itself? Because the, 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 the crypto pitch was, don't worry about the price of Bitcoin or the price of Ethereum or Solana, whatever it is. Imagine the stuff we're going to build that is going to reshape. You can hear the, the skepticism in yeah, the voice. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, this is the new, this is like 1994 and we've just made the web browser and you couldn't even imagine what this is going to turn into, but that's what now we have it. When you're betting on crypto, that's what you're betting on. Is that pitch persuasive to you? So I'm speaking for myself. My Redpoint partners might disagree or do disagree with some of this. But my my personal opinion is like there are definitive use cases for crypto that I think could make sense or do make sense depending on. And I think like this whole concept of Bitcoin as a digital gold Okay, maybe if enough people now gold's been around for thousands of years, right? And it's been accepted as a currency and actually as utility, you can use gold for for different things, right? Bitcoin, you can't do that, but but it's currency. It's 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 stable-ish, not stable, but and now it's kind of reached the escape. It shows up on you know uh, CNBC in the bottom right corner of the ticker, and people report on it. And so we've kind of collectively decided that this is important enough and means something that it can be a store of value. This digital gold concept that's there, the utility of a bunch of other stuff like. Seems far more speculative to me. And I've struggled. There are a handful of use cases that I believe in. Someone will say, oh, well, the Iranian government seized uh, my family's yep. assets. And it's like, OK, well, that's a use case. Hiding money from corrupt governments uh, is is another term kind of for money laundering. Right. And now money laundering has a negative connotation. If you think the government's corrupt, then you're trying to launder money and keep it away from them, right? So I think that's a use case as well. Probably people in Russia right now that have had a bunch of their actual dollars frozen. I think that's a use case. I don't think that's a huge market. I think it's that New York real estate. Yeah, I think that's a smallish market. Um, but that's one. And then there's this this wire transfer. Hey, you know, shouldn't we have a better better Western Union? Shouldn't we have things with less middlemen in the middle? Real estate transactions have a bunch of middlemen. I think a lot of these things we're seeing slowly uh, engineers that like cool tech rediscover 
the financial markets that were built in the 1920s, 1930s, and all the pitfalls that come along with it, right? And so that's kind of where it breaks down for me is I've struggled with the use cases. And then there's the whole NFT, you know, board Ape Yacht Club thing that I can't buy into, but... So I've spent a little time poking at this and asking about use cases. I just asked someone yesterday who's a, 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 a crypto investor. I said, can you tell me a use case that is, doesn't involve speculation or investment? You know, And he said, no, I don't like that question. The whole point of this is for that. And, All right, fine. The other argument that I kept hearing is, and, and it's a little worked a little bit on, on my dark soul, is we don't really know what this stuff is, but there's so much money and brain power flocking to this, that something will come out of it. And maybe you can't imagine what it is, but someone's going to stumble on something and they'll end up creating Amazon or Google or whatever it is. And you kept hearing stories about engineers leaving Facebook, Google, et cetera, going to Web3 startups. Now that cryptocurrencies are are going backwards, are you seeing that stop where you're seeing people who were going to go start a crypto thing stop that? Or is that continuing? Yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely I, I've joked that like the dumbest people I know and the smartest people I know are interested in crypto. And it's for different reasons. The smartest people I know love the technology and like uh, which is which is awesome. The dumbest people I know just want to make money quick, right? And so oh, are, the smart people want to make money. Sure, too. sure, but but I think their intrigue has a lot to do with the technology. They're intellectually like, oh, this, this is, is cool. so cool. What if right. we could build yeah. a new thing? hundred percent. And so I think the the people that were only in it to get rich quick, and there's a spectrum. We can't put it in just two buckets, but that every incremental person that just wanted to do it to make money is certainly leaving the uh, the sector. I agree to your to your early thing earlier thing though. We don't know what this is going to become. And it, it, it's funny for me, I, I don't want to be a cynic about this, right? Your job it, is being an optimist, It's right? actually great for my business if crypto changes, if, if if all the value in JP Morgan and Bank of America and Western Union and Citi all gets broken up and there's an opportunity to invest in all the discrete parts of those banks and institutions and all that, that is fantastic for my business, right? And so if this works, I think I can, I definitely will have another act in my career in which I'm a, I'm a crypto uh bull. I just don't, what I've struggled with is how we get from here to there. And I think there's a lot of smart people that can, that can probably articulate some elements of how to do it. But it also, if you really get down to it, it's like, hey, trust us, there's enough smart people thinking about it. And there's enough problems that this could potentially solve. We'll get there. I was I was checking out your LinkedIn. It looks like you got into the business like 2010 ish. Yeah. So I, uh, I I've been in venture uh, since 2014. I've been in tech since 2012. So this is your first downturn when people tell you about ah oh, back in 2008 it was this or in 2000 it was this. Does are you able to sort of piece together what's different, what's the same, or this is all just a fresh hill you're going down, you're going to find out. I think every downturn is is slightly different than the ones before. And so to some extent, not having lived, I, I was trying to get an internship through the global financial crisis. So I, uh, I, I was perfectly removed from it, uh, but able to observe the impact of it in, in some ways. I think every market or correction has its own features. And so to some extent, to have fresh eyes on some of these things, I think is a good thing. I also am very much a student of how all these 
firms have come to be and how the venture asset class has played out and all of that. And so I think there's a lot of things I've 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 tried to internalize just from paying attention or talking to smart people. But it's definitely first time for me kind of going through all of this stuff. I think I think uh, for most of the audience here. I think that's right. I, I, I was thinking about, I mean, the average employee at most of my companies has to be 27, 28, 29. And so like, you know, and, and CEOs too. I think most of the companies I've invested in, the CEO is under 35, right? Which puts them only entering the workforce right after the global financial crisis. I just remember in, the, in 2000 that the people who got laid off first as the bubble was bursting did best because they got the most money. There was the most money to give them. And so many of them were talking about going to cooking school with their fun employment money. And I've always wanted to track them and see who actually like became a chef. Yeah, with their, I, with I their bubble think, money. I don't think Mario Gabelli was in the. Uh, you know, maybe Guy Fieri was uh, back maybe. in the nineties. And then if the worst is to be the one of the last people to let go because there's nothing to give you. They'll yeah, just kick you out. And maybe you take an Aeron chair, pull it out. Of the that's right, and, and that's the argument, by the way, that people on the crypto side will make is that like, hey, Amazon and eBay and ultimately Google and whatever, all these things came out of that period of time, and so ninety five percent of the stuff is is. MLM Ponzi scheme fraud, but this 5% nugget is going to be really, really important. I, I don't know. I, I hope they're right. I think it would be great to see all the innovation. There are certainly problems. But when I look at the amount of fraud that's going, we've had $26 billion of fraud in crypto since it's been invented. And it's like, that's a lot of value being destroyed, right? And so I, I, I struggle with the trade-offs of, not to mention if it doesn't work, how many smart people could be doing other things, right? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out if this is, like if you're the, because again, in, in the olden days, in 99, you'd go into a bar and CNBC would be on and people, regular people were in, investing in IPOs and you literally would hear from a cab driver who said, oh, I'll be done driving this cab in six months because I'm putting my money into the globe.com. And I saw some stuff that said like 16% of Americans have bought cryptocurrency. That seems way too high to me. You think you think it's lower number? I think it's way lower, but I don't know. I mean, I know that Robinhood makes it really easy to buy Dogecoin, and I, I did that right when Elon Musk went on SNL, so I'm down 80%. But it seems like it's stuff is pretty esoteric for most people still. Yeah, I it, it's it, I mean, when this stuff gets posted on all the talk shows and Jim Cramer's talking about it and Kathy Wood's talking about it, and I think it just opens a lot of I, I mean, the number of people that I know that have bought just random NFTs and the names are always like, you know, this is the Buckcoin Dragon, yeah. you know, collection. But it's, it's hard to buy an NFT. It's it not is. impossible, but it's hard. Have you, Jelani, Travis, have you guys tried to buy an NFT? Please shake your heads. Now. Do you know who Kathy Wood is? No. Okay. okay. So I think it's still at the margins. Yeah. No, I, I 16% though is, I mean, honestly, when you look at any stats about the United States, it's kind of like, you know, what percentage of people think Jeffrey Epstein killed, mm -hmm. you know, that Bill Clinton's dead and was murdered by Jeffrey Epstein, who's living in it. Like, That's my other podcast. Yeah. I, I was going to say, whenever there's like a random conspiracy, I'm always surprised. It always seems like there's 15% of the population that actually believes that. So, I, you know, if 15% if of people think Jeffrey Epstein's still alive, then I, it doesn't surprise me on the crypto side. But I agree. It does seem like a high number. My hope is that we would eventually end this podcast by talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, so. Honestly, I try to bring it all back. I, uh, you know, Uncle 
Uncle Jeff. I, I try to bring it all back to him at some point. Logan Bartlett, well done. Yeah, thank uh, you. People can find you on TikTok and YouTube and Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is probably my most prolific. Logan Bartlett is my Twitter handle. And uh, yeah, and then also Cartoon Avatars podcast. Awesome. This has been Recode Media. And I want to thank Travis and Jelani who are trying to figure out how to put all their money in Dogecoin right now as we speak. And I want to thank our sponsors for bringing this podcast to you for free. And I want to thank you guys for listening. Oh, and a reminder. Uh, if you like this podcast, and I guess you do because you're still listening, there is a column I put out once a week, and that is also free, and some of the stuff cross-pollinates. So you may like that as well. You can get that at Vox.com.